Father, we thank you as we uh, gather in this place today. We honor you. We, we pause and remember you as our God, uh, and not just as our creator, but as our sustainer and our savior. And we're so thankful to be able to rehearse the gospel uh, anew this morning, to trust in Christ, to lean on his righteousness, uh, to rest in his finished work for us. And we thank you for how it uh, continues by means of your spirit through your word, uh, to bring transformation and fruit. And even as we think about the topic today, as we deal with uh, various challenges and situations in life, we thank you that your word uh, is sufficient for every need and that Christ's power uh, is sufficient through that word to uh, make us adequate for life and godliness. And uh, we rejoice in that. We, we thank you for that. And we pray that we will be built up as we come to worship you today. Uh, thank you for Jim. Thank you for uh, his ministry to us uh, yesterday and again this morning. And we ask your blessings on him and his family and his ministry. And uh, we're grateful uh, to be able to be together this weekend. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our guest speaker who has served us well at our spring community seminar yesterday and again will be serving us this morning is Dr. Jim Neuheiser. Uh, Jim is a friend of our church. He's been here multiple times and uh, just a, a dear friend. Um, he uh, currently serves as professor of Christian counseling, really biblical counseling at and uh, pastoral theology at the Reformed Theological Seminary, the Charlotte campus. Uh, he also is executive director of IBCD. I know many of you are familiar with IBCD and their uh, many, many years of resources and conferences and good work that they do. And uh, Jim also serves uh, as an ACBC board member and uh, supervisor. And he does all sorts of other things, like write books and all that. But anyway, uh, Jim is a dear friend. We're, we're grateful. He's very busy in his ministry, so we're grateful that we have him here with us. Uh, would you join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Jim Neuheiser? Actually, yeah, let's, uh, guys, you want to show the video real quick, and then he'll come on up. Let's cut to the chase. Mom, where were you the night of August 24th? You sent Annabeth over to my house for the night. Exactly. So explain this. There's a Snickers and a Reese cup. She loves those. It's sugar. And according to section 14-2 of Mom's rule book, there's a strict ban on sugar in this house. But sweetie, we weren't at your house. So you want to play that game? All right, Mom. Tell me, what was my bedtime when I was Annabeth's age? Nine o'clock. Uh-huh. Now, can you read the timestamp for me on this selfie? You know I can't read without my glasses. 10.30 p.m. You can't believe everything you see on the Internet. You posted this on your own Facebook. I don't see what the problem is. I'm her grandma. It's my job to spoil her. That's it. <laughs> Kevin? Okay, Grandma. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I brought you some chocolate chip cookies. They're on the counter. Cookies? Awesome. Make sure Annabeth gets some. They're her favorite. No, okay. no! Mom, you leave me no choice. 
If you're going to watch Annabeth, then you have to follow our rules. That means no sugar. It means be in bed by nine. It means eating what everyone else eats for dinner and no more than an hour of TV. And are you even listening to me right now? Look at this. Do you think Annabeth would like this? Yes, she would look adorable in that. I know. That's why I bought it. Now, if you'll please excuse me, I've promised Annabeth to go get ice cream. Annabeth! Sweetie, it's time for ice cream! Well, I will. Okay, I'm done with the video now. Um, I realize that most of you are enjoying the beautiful day yesterday. Not all of you are able to make the seminar. So I was going to kind of set the context for our topic this morning, which is really building on the others and just kind of summarize. Let's get that off of there. Thank you. Um, summarize where we've been so far is, as Keith mentioned, I've had the privilege of writing some materials and the materials I've written have tended to be, the books I've written have tended to focus on topics that nobody else had covered yet that kept coming up in counseling. I said, what could I give this person to read? And it didn't exist. And so that's what motivated me to work on it. Uh, and we covered uh, three of the four parenting materials that I've created yesterday. I'm just going to kind of, the last one builds on the first four. What am I doing wrong? Some of these books are left, most of them sold yesterday, but this one is called Parenting is More Than a Formula. And the premise is that many people have been told if you just follow this particular way of parenting, your kids will all turn out great. And I try to establish the Bible does not teach that our parenting is deterministic. And that one is, is that the Bible gives general guidelines for training our children. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we're to not provoke them to anger. We are to discipline them and we are to instruct them. And different families are going to work that out different ways in terms of schooling and uh, activities and other such things. That We have a lot of responsibility, a lot of freedom. We as parents are influences on our children, but the world is also an influence, like you see in the book of Proverbs. And so we, they make choices as they become young adults that we cannot control. And so some people will say, well, look, my adult child is wayward. What did I do wrong? Well, A, I'd say we all did lots of things wrong. <laughs> that, and yet, B, you try to be faithful. And the Bible teaches in many places. You can think of like the book of Kings and Chronicles, where you have a good king, but he has a bad son. You think of Adam and Eve. They had two sons initially. And one rebelled and murdered, and the other was faithful and worshipped God. Same parents, same environment. And so we can't control that. So just... And then the ultimate point is we need God's grace to save our kids. It's not that if you just, it's not like baking a cake or making a pie. If you just follow the instructions, it'll all work out great. You want to be faithful to do what the Bible says. Each family has to work it out their own way without telling everybody else how to do it in their home. And then we trust God for the outcome. So that's this little thing. Um, another one, which was our second talk yesterday, is dealing with rebellion, particularly in teenagers. And what do you do when teenage rebellion begins? And first, you examine your own heart. Get the log out of your own eye. You can, I know when I dealt with this the first time, I felt very judgmental and angry. And that was not a good place from which to deal with the problem. You need to commit yourself during an urgent situation to do whatever is necessary to care for your family. 
Uh, you need both to restrain them in, through discipline, but also find ways to love them, love them in ways they don't deserve. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So that's this one. And then I should say, like, even for that one, there are lots of books about parenting when things go well. My books are kind of parenting when things aren't going well. You read those other books and problems. The other one we covered yesterday is dealing with parents and adult kids. And this was two parents dealing with their adult kids. Another topic where I had counselees coming in and they had a 35-year-old son still living at home playing video games and not working. Or a daughter who was marrying a guy they don't approve of or even now with the gender issues, things going on with their kids. So how does the Bible and its sufficiency and perfect wisdom help us as parents of adult kids? And that's my status now. I have kids who are 41, 38, and 35. How do we navigate financial issues when they get in trouble? Uh, they want to live with us. And so trying to apply biblical principles of wisdom for that. And I actually thought I was done. <laughs> what else is there to cover? And then... What has happened, actually, is when I went to Charlotte seven years ago to teach in the seminary, I've got all these Gen Z people, uh, the youngest generation, and then the church we're a part of is much younger than the church I left in California, in that we have lots of, I'd say, millennials, and, and we have all these young families who are very faithful to the Lord, having lots of kids, and they're having all kinds of trouble with their parents in my generation who are micromanaging them or kind of like that video, not respecting their rules for the kids. Uh, likewise, even among these seminary students, uh, a lot of them have issues where they feel like their parents mistreated them or their parents think they're crazy to go to seminary when they ought to be out making money, doing something important. And so how do you wrestle with these issues? And so again, believing in the sufficiency of scripture, and this is just a little small mini book, but it's how to love difficult parents. So it goes the other way. The first three, what do parents do with kids? This is one is when you're, you know, an adult, it doesn't mean your parents are sinless and wise. Sometimes they're foolish and sinful or just difficult. So how do you deal with that? And I've seen many different situations. And uh, a lot of the counseling that I supervise is... My counselors are fairly young, being seminary students. They're counseling people even younger, young adults, college students. And many of them look back on their childhood, especially now since trauma and abuse is so emphasized. And they'll say, my parent, my father was angry all the time, and my parents were selfish. Some of them were physically disciplined. Uh, They're trying to process how they were raised. Some of them were in homes where they were not protected and they were sexually mistreated by a sibling or a relative and they're trying to get over that. And again, their parents, if they were aware, did not protect them from that. Um, You have families, I'll just give you some real scenarios that I got a call from a friend that they wanted me to get in, in. A friend in my generation had parents in their 80s and they were living in our region and the, the mother is a hoarder. Not only a hoarder, she's got like 18 cats, which in my opinion is 19 too many. Um, and the house is full of cat mess. There are boxes and possessions, garage sales, Amazon just filling this place. 
And what do you do if you're the 60-year-old son with your 85-year-old parents whose house is that kind of mess? Um, or the cases like in the video that are a little more serious where you know, you let your, you're happy that your mother wants to watch your kids, but then they let your kids watch R-rated movies or food that's really unhealthy. And you know, they say, well, I'm a grandmother. I have different rules. Well, I think there's some give there, but sometimes you think the well-being of your children is genuinely affected by what they do. Uh, situations where older parents have financial need. Caroline counseled a, a lady in her late 20s. She's a nurse making a good living. Her parents are divorced. Her father is a drunkard. And he keeps chasing her and asking for money. And, of course, he doesn't ask for money for alcohol. He asks for money for food and for lodging and tries to make her feel guilty for not helping. Uh, or the cases where you thought your parents had a great marriage and then you learn after 49 years they're getting divorced. And even some where one of them is leaving the other to go into a homosexual relationship. Or <laughs> another case Carol and I have had to dealt with, deal with a couple times like this would be uh, the husband has been kind of a laid-back guy. His mother was pretty dominant. He marries often marrying someone like mom, actually. And, but now mom doesn't like new daughter-in-law. And, new, and mom is very critical. Mom is very controlling. And she also kind of takes shots, especially if the husband isn't there, belittling the daughter-in-law, criticizing her housekeeping, cooking, uh, child training, everything else you can imagine. And the husband, the, her son, is terrified of doing anything about it and just says, hey, just do what I do. Just let it go by. Well, his wife is not wired for that. (laughs) And we had to work with that. Or uh, another situation where character Elaine and her parents are in their 80s. They live out in the country and they love living there. They've been there for decades and it's an hour away from the city. They have to drive 20 miles into town to get their mail and they're living on their own. And she goes and visits her parents and she gets in the car to go with her dad to get the mail. And he's running through stop signs and rolling through lights and seems oblivious as he's driving. And he's concerned somebody's going to get killed. (laughs) Uh, And then she gets back at the house and in the fridge there's food from a decade ago that's obviously spoiled. And at night she sneaks up at midnight and tries to throw it away without her mother seeing her. Uh, but, you know, does she, what does she do? How does she take the driver's license away? When she brought it up, dad got mad. How dare you? I'm fine. I can fill the whole time just with these scenarios. I'm going to try to give you some answers in a minute. I'll give you one more, and that is, I'll say Valerie, I'll call her. And she isn't having all the drama, but just, um, she's 25, she's living on her own, she's got a good job, and yet, her parents are constantly making critical comments. Why don't you get married? They try to micromanage her life. And she says, don't you realize I'm an adult? So I believe the Bible is sufficient. And actually, I was thinking, are there examples? I used some yesterday, but one I think of, especially I think of Jonathan with his father, Saul, where Jonathan was a righteous son and his father was a wicked man who was trying to kill David and a bad king and all of that. Uh, we had Ezekiel 18 yesterday. There are other examples of kings like that. But the Bible gives us wisdom. And then first, positively, 
uh, we as adult children have responsibilities according to the Bible for our parents. Uh, small children are called to obey. And unless your parents tell you to sin, you know, we must obey God rather than men. But when you're a minor in the home, although it's interesting in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus broke away from the group uh, and was in the temple, uh, he was doing what was right in that particular situation. Um, and yet, my understanding would be, and we talked about this yesterday, that when a child becomes an adult, they're no longer in subjection to their parents. Genesis 2.24, you leave father and mother, you're joined to your spouse as an obvious example, a new family unit. I've seen problems in certain cultures or families where uh, the patriarch of the family still expects his adult married children to obey him and be under his authority. I've seen people try to use the Scripture to establish that. Uh, but then we talked yesterday about what about single adults? And in John chapter 9, you have the example of the man born blind, and he had been healed by Jesus. And the Jewish leaders who didn't like it or believe it went to the parents and said, you know, what happened to your son? And said, this, you know, that's our son. We know that, that he was born blind. We know that. But who healed him? Ask him. He is of age. And so I think in the Bible, there's a different expectation of an adult. First Corinthians 7, it talks about a single person is free if they choose not to be married, to use their singleness, not to serve their parents necessarily, but to serve the Lord. There's an assumption in their adulthood they have the right to make that choice. I gave the example to Numbers that when the unbelieving spies had gone to see the land uh, from Moses, uh, the, those 20 years old and over were, had the responsibility, even if their parents had gone with the unbelieving spies, they were held responsible and they would die in the land if they didn't, in the wilderness if they didn't. They had the responsibility to express their own faith by following Joshua and Caleb and not the unbelieving ones. So I'm convinced uh, from the Bible that single adults are responsible for their own choices, including who they marry and career and things like that. Uh, This goes against some teaching, especially Bill Gothard used to teach, and some homeschool leaders today still make it sound like absolute authority. If your child's 40 years old and they're not married, they're under your authority. I think that's unbiblical and destructive. Um, And I think also that over-controlling parents exasperate their adult children. It's Colossians 3.21, Ephesians 6.4 warn against that. Uh, we, and it can be hard for us. You know, I'm right in the middle. I've got, I'm the adult, I'm the parent of adult kids, and I've got a mother-in-law and a mother who are older than I. And um, there can be challenges on both sides to adjust to new relationships. Uh, there are, I think, also unique responsibilities of an adult child who's living at home. That's a different situation. If you're out and on your own, that's more or less your business. But if you were to live with anybody, you would be responsible to follow their rules. Anybody who gives you, you know, even a guy that rents you an apartment, you can't, you, they have rules about pets. They have rules about paying the rent and utilities and things like that. And there can be challenges, and we talked about that yesterday from the parental standpoint, but off from the standpoint of a child where you're living with your parents, maybe it's to complete your education or, you know, you have a good job and you're looking forward to, you know, marriage someday. So there can be you know, reasons to be there, but if you're in their home, you are to live by their rules. 
and you can't expect you know, absolute freedom living in somebody else's house. Uh, they're free to set conditions for ongoing support. Um, anyway, so again, it's complicated because parents need to make reasonable expectations, which I think they have the right, like Second Thessalonians 3, if someone doesn't work, neither shall he eat. Second Timothy 2.22. So parents and children living at home have to work out uh, expectations on both sides. But here's the deal. Like, from the standpoint, if you're the adult child living with your parents, if you don't like the deal they're offering, you can go find a better deal somewhere else. They have the freedom to kick you out. You have the freedom to leave because you're an adult. And we talked yesterday about issues especially of work. You should work as hard at whatever you're doing, be it school or employment, as they work to be able to provide a house for you to live in. And they have a right to set certain standards in terms of drinking or morality, whatever, if you're living in the home. And you should be grateful. But you have freedom to leave, uh, and there should be a purpose for you being there. And there is a major problem, not just in our country, but all over the world right now, with young adults who aren't growing up. And sometimes they and their parents need to take some measures to do that. But the Bible also says that as an adult child, while we are not required to obey our parents, we are required to honor them. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, doesn't go away when you become an adult, even if you move out of the house. Proverbs 23:22. listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. And there's an explicit passage where Jesus teaches how the fifth commandment applies to us as adult children. In Matthew 15, uh, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for not following the tradition of washing hands in a certain way. And he says in verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, What I would have done to help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother, and by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And so Jesus is saying that if your parents are destitute, and Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 5, if you have a a parent or a grandparent who is in need, a widow, then following the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother means you make sure they're taken care of. And actually something that makes Christians kind of unique in culture is we do what we can when we have a widowed mother or older father and mother to bring them into our homes and to care for their needs and make sacrifices for that and driving them to doctor's appointments. And and so that's what we're called to do, to make sure their material needs are met. Now, for most of us, our elderly parents have enough money because there are retirement programs and Social Security and IRAs, we also honor them by investing in the relationship. My mother and my mother-in-law have plenty of money, uh, but they're lonely. They've each lost a husband in the last year and a half. And so Carolyn and I call them most days. We invite them to come spend weeks at a time with us. We go see them. They're living independently. That's their preference. But my son, youngest son, actually plays music in nursing homes. And 
I've been there once or twice with him. And there's a lot of loneliness sometimes in those places. And maybe on Mother's Day or Christmas or something. And, and so part of honoring them is to invest in the relationship with parents and grandparents. I'd say to some of you younger people, even if you have grandparents who are still alive, call them. If they're not in the area, go see them. Uh, it's, that is what the, the fifth commandment is saying to us. And then, you know, seeking their counsel. You know, we don't have to follow everything they say, but we listen to them. Um, a challenge that has come up sometimes in counseling, I've seen cases where a wife said to her husband, I don't want to be around your parents anymore, or I don't want even you to hang around with your parents anymore. Now, there could be, why does she feel that way? Is you, you know, there's not a simple answer to that. If the parents are domineering and mean to her, then that needs to be addressed. But sometimes I've just seen where she's jealous of his relationship with his mother and father. And I can't see that they're doing anything particularly wrong other than her jealousy. And I've even seen a wife virtually threaten, if you go see your mother again, you know, I'm leaving or something. I think Acts 5.29 comes in there, too. We must obey God rather than men. I can't neglect my parents because of a spouse or somebody else putting pressure on me not to do what the Bible says I should do. And I realize there may be reasons why the spouse doesn't want you. We need to work that through. So, uh, but there are often significant challenges. And I listed a lot of those in the beginning in terms of in-law conflicts and financial conflicts. And so I want to give kind of a broad perspective on how the Bible would speak to do that, seek, tell us to do that, and then we'll do some of the specifics. But the first aspect is the greatest commandment is to love God, to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yesterday we talked in the last session about the passages where Jesus said, you must hate father and mother to follow me. Now, he does not mean... He's using an expression there, like Jacob I love, Esau I hated, that you must choose me above your parents. And many people have been put in a position, we talked about this some with the LGBTQ issue, and it's often with a child or a grandchild where, you know, they come out as transgender, they come out as homosexual, and they demand that you embrace and celebrate that. And that's where I must obey God rather than men. And even if you hate me, Jesus said the gospel would bring division. In Luke 12, he says... In the same family, there'd be you know, father against mother and daughter against daughter-in-law and all these lists of relationships. And so you don't want to be pugnacious. You don't want to cause trouble. But if they put demands upon you that conflict with your responsibilities to God, you have to choose God over your parents. So that's the first principle. And sometimes situations like that come up. I gave an example yesterday of a new Christian from Singapore from a family that was practicing Eastern religions. And she came home on leave, and her parents wanted her to offer sacrifices to idols and to their ancestors. And and they even said, look, just do it, even if you don't believe it, just pretend. And she couldn't dishonor God for the sake of honoring her family, even though they felt very deeply dishonored, and that threatened the relationship. Uh, I've seen this at seminary students, where you have... a, a son who has a sense of a call of God to ministry, and he has parents who wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. And uh, he has the freedom. He can't make them pay for it, but he has the freedom to make those choices, even though they may just be acting extremely disappointed or worse 
because they don't approve of the choices uh, he makes. So then your marriage comes next. And that's pictured in a beautiful way of you shall leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife. And in the marriage ceremony, as the father walks his daughter up the aisle, uh, he stands between the bride and the groom until he gives the, you know, says her mother and I give her. And then he gets out of the way. Right? He's done. He's done. <laughs> his part is over in the wedding. He's now with his wife, which I think is another good thing to emphasize. That's the ongoing relationship. But now there's a new family, and it needs to be respected. And there are many cases where parents are, in an unbiblical way, inappropriate way, controlling. This is where we want our grandkids to go to school. That's how we want you to do this. Here's where we want you to live. Uh, family events every weekend. Family events on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, I talked about the example that's been way too common is just belittling your spouse and criticizing your spouse. Uh, it may be necessary. You know, the case I mentioned, we had to coach the son who would just always let his mother's meanness roll over him, that it was hurting his wife a great deal, and that he needed to confront his mother and say, you know, I, I care about you, I love you but the way you're treating my wife is not acceptable, and we're not going to be able to spend much time around you if this doesn't change. And that was terrifying for him. But I can also say that even though the situation isn't perfect, that just the fact that he finally did that meant a great deal to his wife, that he finally stood up for her. Another principle, general principle, is we need to be willing to overlook minor offenses. Uh, I had a friend from our church come to me one time, and he was talking about his mother-in-law. And so my mother-in-law, um, when she watches our kids, and by the way, she's watching the kids so he can go away for a night with his wife or go on a date with his wife. My mother-in-law, she doesn't exactly follow the rules. Well, what does that mean? It was kind of like four cookies instead of two cookies. And it was 9.30 instead of 9. And it was, you know, two approved movies instead of one approved movies. And I said, well, you can talk to her about it, but I... You know, I really wouldn't, there's some, some things, just love covers a multitude of sins, and it's a glory to overlook a matter, and there are grandparents. I mean, that, and so there are some issues not worth fighting, and yet more serious incidents, more serious problems must be confronted gently and lovingly. Galatians 6.1, if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And so uh, you and your spouse may determine that there's something going on with family or it could be overly demanding, controlling, not following the rules with the kids, where, again, you go not in anger. A lot of times people only confront when they're furious, and that's very destructive. It says you who are spiritual, you're walking in the Spirit, you're full of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. You know, that's what's going on inside of you. And then you're coming to restore relationships, not to vent your frustrations because you finally had it. There are going to be some situations that you'll have no control over, even though it makes you really sad. Your parents divorce. One of your parents goes into a bad lifestyle. You see them spending stupidly and you see them spending away their retirement. And uh, you're kind of worried that once that money's all gone, they're going to be coming your way, and what are you going to do then? Or uh, the driving thing can be complicated. I think it could be at a point for the safety of others, you have to make an issue of it and go to a doctor or DMV or something to save lives. 
uh, that can be costly in terms of relationships. Sometimes things are just happening, you know, like the guy, the father who's drinking, and, you know, you see they're ruining their lives, but you don't have the power to stop them. Just like for parents of adult kids, the other way around, is that sometimes your children who are out of the house are doing bad and foolish things, and it's like watching, you know, you're in the canyon or something, you see these two trains coming around the bend at each other, about to crash into each other, but you have no way of stopping it. And that can be a great trial. What do you do? You pray. Sometimes they may have to experience the consequences of their foolishness. What a person sows, they will reap, Galatians 6, 7. Um, you know, if they're not willing to work, they're going to have poverty. If they're spending a bunch of money gambling or on drunkenness, they get involved in debt by living beyond their means, um, they may have to suffer that to some degree. Um, I mentioned yesterday Dave Harvey's book, Letting Go, and it's broadly speaking for various family relationships in the sense that sometimes we have relatives, it could be children or parents or brothers or sisters, and we keep trying to rescue them, we keep trying to save them, but all we're doing is enabling their sin. The world would call it codependency. And sometimes we have to let them experience the consequences of the bad choices they're making, and there's nothing we can do about it. And he gives the example of the father of the prodigal son. His son leaves. He's made up his mind to go to the world. And so that can be... That can be hard, but sometimes that's the only choice you have. I've already mentioned sometimes you may have to intervene in a dangerous situation like the driving or health. Uh, there could be a situation they profess to be Christians and they're doing something very sinful. In Matthew 18, you may need to go, if you confront them, bring others in. If they're in a different church, even try to get that church involved if it's that serious. Or even if they're professed to be Christians and their marriage is breaking apart. Um, I would also add, by the way, like in the example of the house full of cats and hoarding and everything, if the son knows about it and he's not taking action, he could be accused of elder abuse. And that's another category right now governments are dealing with. And so we may have responsibility there legally as well. We need to recognize that the heart is the cause of the problems, like Jesus says in Mark 7. The, the problem isn't their behavior. People, Jesus said, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. The, the, when there's bad fruit, there's a bad root. The nature of the tree is bad. And, and what they need is not merely a change of behavior. They need Christ. Now, just as with wayward children, we don't stop loving them because they do wrong. In Luke 6, verse 32... Uh, Jesus says, if you love others who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do the same. But if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful as your father is merciful. And just like with parents of adult kids who get into trouble, there may be times where if your parents are older and they've made many foolish choices, you may, if you have hope they're going to listen, you may choose to show mercy that they didn't deserve if you're able to do so. That also could be complicated. If you're in that situation, get wise biblical counsel from others. I can't just give you a blanket answer to that one. Um, 
but sometimes not enablement, but sometimes mercy, especially if they seem to be getting it. Um, some specific questions that pop up. Um, sometimes, actually pretty commonly, when <clears throat> parents aren't getting along, they try to draw their adult children into their conflicts and to take sides. Uh, Proverbs 26.17 says, Like one who takes a dog by the ears is one who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Uh, my general advice would be if they're having conflict, especially if they profess to be Christians, please get counsel from the leaders of your church. We hate to see you having conflict like this, but you could try to apply principles of biblical peacemaking. Uh, that's great material. Blessed are the peacemakers. But I would be very careful, and sometimes it may be wiser to get church authority doing that rather than family. Um, other situations that occur, uh, I've known several cases. Again, I'll talk about a friend we had in church, and her father left her mother and married somebody else that he'd been having an affair with, still claimed to be a Christian, which made it complicated. And she came to me. She had been fairly newly married. She says, what do I do now? You know, what relationship do I have with my father? I'm pretty sure it was at the wedding. And as we talked about it, first of all, I'll tell you a conclusion I've reached about 1 Corinthians uh, 5, where it says, don't even eat with a professing Christian who does these things. My personal conclusion would be, you can't have Christian fellowship with a professing Christian who's living an evil life. But... As an example, if a woman is married to a man who is put out of the church for drinking too much or for stealing or something, I'm not sure that means she can't sit down at the table with her husband. I think it does mean he can't be a spiritual leader to her. She can't acknowledge him being a Christian. And so I think for this woman, and again, it's a specific strategy that has to be employed as you talk through things of how do I show respect to my father, have some kind of relationship with him, and yet not acknowledge him as a Christian or that I approve of what he's done. But you can love people with whom you disapprove, just like if you have an adult child who's living in fornication or other sin, you don't have to shun them the rest of your life. Uh, You can try to have a relationship without approving. Um, You also need to let them know what your convictions are as gently as possible. Um, you will face some hard decisions. It can be very awkward in terms of Christmas and family events and who do you include and people who can't be in the same room together. Um, The financial help situation, I've already mentioned 1 Timothy 5 and Matthew 15. There can be complicated situations there as well. We had a man in our church in California, I'll call him Ted, and Ted was from an Asian country. He was, his parents had immigrated, but he was pure whatever that is, and that he was, Filipino. And uh, he got to know a girl who was in the Philippines, and they wrote back and forth, and then he went over there and ultimately decided to get married, and then she got a visa and came to the United States. Well, about a month later, her parents showed up. <laughs> and he had a two-bedroom condo, and they showed up, and they were not there for a visit. They were there to stay. And they had quit their jobs back in the Philippines, and they just figured, we're going to move in with our kids, and when they start having babies, we'll help take care of them. And that was a kind of common thing in our culture. And, I mean, Ted was pretty disturbed. (laughs) Newly married, got your in-laws all in this small apartment, 
And we had to work things through also with his wife that if they were 80 and couldn't support themselves, might be appropriate time for them to move in. But if they're perfectly healthy, perfectly capable of earning a living, that's not what the Bible means about helping what Jesus meant in Matthew 15. Uh, likewise, the girl who's the nurse whose father was trying to get money out of her when he's living a, a foolish lifestyle, uh, we're not responsible to continue to enable foolish behavior. Another situation, we had, a again, a single woman whose parents were financially foolish, and they pressured her to co-sign their foolish debt. And again, well, that's what families do for each other, they say. Well, read my money book over there. <laughs> Co-signing is about the most foolish thing in the world you can do, according to the book of Proverbs. Um, and so if they're doing foolish things, get-rich-quick schemes. Otherwise, it's, it's hard to watch them doing it, but it would be wrong for you to enable it. When they get in trouble, and again, it's very similar, just as if you're a parent of an adult child and he gets his life messed up, if he's repentant and wants help, you may want to help him. Um, and so there may be situations where they realize we've really been foolish and you offer limited help within what you can afford. Uh, another aspect that often comes up is what happens when your parents move in with you. And my understanding would be that if my mother-in-law or my mother or both, I'm not sure that would work, <laughs> moved in with us, that now that it's our, just in the same way that if I was a young adult living with my parents, they would set the rules. If they move into our house, we set the rules. And I actually remember a limited example of that is that when Carolyn and I got married, my parents would come to stay, and my father was a chain smoker. And I just said, if you need to smoke, you need to go outside. You can't smoke inside our house because it's our house. And I remember actually standing out in the cold and the rain with him, so I wasn't totally without mercy, talking with him while he has to smoke his cigarette, uh, but he respected that it was our house and our rules. So uh, there can be complicated situations when they move in and they take over, and sometimes those situations need to be addressed as well. Um, we've already really talked some about parents who may create conflict, uh, mistreating your spouse. There are also much more serious problems that have come up sometimes, and I, I don't enjoy talking about them, but um, we had a real case of a woman, married woman, let's say 35 years old, and she had been mistreated in a very horrific way by a brother. She tried to get her parents to get involved, and they just kind of turned the other way. And now she's in her mid-30s and she's trying to figure out what kind of relationship to have with her family. And I think that there are different responses somebody may choose under those circumstances. I think in many cases there might need to be a confrontation and we're willing to forgive you, but you need to admit that this happened and it's hard for us to have a close relationship with you in light of the past. You know, there, there can be grace and forgiveness, but it may be very difficult for her. Or if there were family members who did evil like that, you're not going to leave your children there alone with them. And so there can be serious sin in the past of being having been horribly mistreated or uh, physically abused. 
And, you know, I'm not saying because they spanked you at all. Now people are saying they were traumatized because they got spanked once or twice as they grew up. But I'm saying really serious, angry, hurtful stuff. And so sometimes their past or present sin may create the need to limit the relationship. I think Romans 12:18, as far as is possible to you, be at peace with all men. But you have to protect your family, keep your children and your spouse safe, which sometimes means distance. Even it can be less of concern than that. I had a friend with wife, fairly small children, and he had a situation where they went you know, across the state to spend time with her parents. And the father, I think, had been drinking too much, and he became very loud and belligerent and mean. And my friend just packed up the family and drove home early, again, protecting his family from a dangerous situation and even saying, we, we want to have a relation. It's not like we're going to shun you for the rest of our lives, but there are conditions. Like, we're not going to come over if he's drinking. And we're not saying he can never drink. That's between him and the Lord. But, you know, we, we have the freedom to set those conditions. And... Likewise, on, on grandparenting thing. Uh, a question that was raised with a friend yesterday would be, should we be worried if our parents are not believers and keep our children from them? And it would be a concern, but I would not say it's an absolute. And in 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about how if a woman is married to an unbeliever, that she should remain married to him and not leave him. It says that her children are in some sense holy. And that I think the point would be it's complicated, precise interpretation is that you may be worried about your children being married to an unbeliever, but you have to trust God for that and stay in the marriage. And in the same way, if you have parents who are unbelievers and are not going to pray before meals, not going to honor the Lord, read the Bible, do devotions, I don't think that means you need to keep your children from them. They may have different values. Obviously, if they try to undermine your family's values and are doing bad things and watching evil, then you limit the relationship. But I think there are going to be circumstances where part of your children growing up and understanding the world as it really is, they're going to be exposed to other kinds of people with other kinds of beliefs, and they're going to, as they get older, have to make their own choices. Um, There are so many other specific examples I can think of. Let me tell you one of the saddest and most common which is how often estrangement is taking place, total estrangement in these relationships, where I've, I talk to people and they say, well, I've not heard from my kids or I've not heard from my parents in years. I'll give you one specific example of a friend of mine in our church in North Carolina that there's a situation in their family, it's a little complicated, but give you the background, where his, his parents are very strong kind of fundamental King James only Baptistic people, very fundamental division, lots of divisions. Well, somehow my friend's brother angered the parents. And the parents declared to my friend, you're not allowed to talk to your brother anymore. And if you ever talk to him again, we'll have nothing to do with you. And my friend responded, we love you, we want a relationship with you, but I think God would have me also to be friends with my brother, and I will not give in to that. And the parents said, okay, our relationship is over. And it's probably been seven years since he's heard anything from his parents. Um, 
these things are happening in the other direction. When a child comes out as LGBTQ, transgender, whatever, and they say, you must accept my pronouns, celebrate my identity, or we're done. And I think that is the you must hate father and mother, you know, the, the things that Jesus taught. The cost of discipleship sometimes is great. Um, but even with my friend, and we've, we've talked about it, I've had several people in this circumstance where I say, as far as is possible for you to be at peace with all men, what can you do? Well, you can send a card on their birthday. You can send them a card on Christmas. I have another, I've had other friends who adult, um, you know, in my generation, and their kids have been become angry with them, or their son has become angry, or daughter-in-law has become angry and won't see them. And, you know, they try to send gifts for the children. Sometimes the gifts get uh, sent back. And another guy I talked to actually just throws them into the trash, the gifts that the grandparents send to the kids. So these are tragic and awful situations. Part of Romans 12:18 is there's not always something you can do to make it better as far as is possible with you. And so what do you do? Well, you pray every day. You pray with your spouse. You try to find ways to build bridges, uh, even if they've deeply wronged you. Wronging, you know, having wronged you, it may limit the relationship there may be extreme cases where it might sever the relationship, but generally you're trying to be open to rebuilding the relationship. Uh, and again, I've already mentioned like when hard things have happened in childhood. Uh, a lot of people, by the way, just another thing that often pops up is people are concerned, well, maybe my parents messed me up <laughs> as an adult. You know, my parents were so strict and angry and they weren't encouraging or they spanked me too much or maybe they really did abuse you. And I love First Peter 1.18 where it says, In the gospel, in the blood of Christ, we have been redeemed from the sins of our forefathers. The failures of our parents are an influence, but they are not determinative. That God is able, in spite of their sins against you, to make you a godly adult... <laughs> and not to become like them. If they were drunkards and solved every problem with drinking, that doesn't have to be you. It may be an influence, but you can overcome it. Another verse that really brings us out is Galatians 5.16. It says, if you walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And the deeds of the flesh include outbursts of anger and sinful sexual things and drunkenness. And that may have been the, the environment in which you grew up in and violence. And you know, if your parents were abusive, are you going to be an abuser? It doesn't have to be. If, if you're converted, you're a new creature in Christ, and what they did to you, even if they did legitimately, I mean, traumatize you, abuse you, that as you are converted, you can become a new person and, and become a person of love, be a person who's walking in the Spirit. Also, that means you don't have to be embittered against them. Uh, Joseph with his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And even the previous verse, when he says, am I in the place of God? You know, that I'm not, I don't need to judge you for this. So that's something to be very thankful for uh, when we look back at our family of origin. Again, some sins have to be confronted. Some sins may have consequences. And then another aspect, I think, would be for those who are struggling. And Caroline says when she counsels all these young 20-something women, She's astounded how many of them have what she calls daddy issues and or mommy issues. And some of them, again, you hear the stories of the way they grew up, and it was horrendous, where there was 
evil going on in the house that the parents tolerated or promoted. And you know, so that, that can be a real thing. But the ultimate answer, actually, Psalm 27. I remember the first time I noticed this psalm is when a bunch of children memorized it and said it to their parents. And when they got to verse 10... <laughs> It says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. And verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And this would be, I know a lot of you are counselors. I think sometimes for people who really are feeling hurt by their parents and hopeless, the best thing they can do is to study the fatherhood of God. I actually have a message online about that. Um, that to, to know the security we have, that nothing can separate us from his love for us. And he's adopted us as his children. I also think for those who've had awful examples, it can be wonderful to have mentors in the church. Where Sometimes people have substitute grandparents. Because due to no fault of their own, they're estranged from the grandparents who should be involved in their children's lives. And so you can sometimes have those other relationships as well. Um, As we live in a post-Christian world, what Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, I've not come to bring peace but division. He describes all the family divisions. Um, our parents and our children are going to choose sides. And those who choose the world with its values are going to be difficult to get along with. (laughs) And as they rejected Jesus, they may reject us no matter how hard we try to have a relationship with them. Which also means that our security needs to be not in our families, but in the Lord. Uh, Proverbs chapter 29, 25, a familiar verse. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And so... If we're, that's where people will get the so-called codependency, is when you're living for people who are rebelling against God and trying to make it better, um, you may not get anywhere. That may be part of the snare. And so you want to live in a way as best you can that pleases God to pursue peace as far as you can, but ultimately you have to find your security in the Lord. And even if you sense rejection or hatred from family members because... Not because you're obnoxious, we don't want that, but because of your love for Christ, then you thankfully can find your security in the Lord. I think I'll stop there. I've left three minutes. I don't know if you want me to take a question or if you want me to stop. Three minutes. I take that to be a no. (laughs) Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We can call you Father, that you are a perfect Father to us. And you are the model of what we are to be as fathers to our own children. We thank you that though we were unworthy, that we have been adopted in Christ. 
Lord, you know the situation of people here. The most of them are strangers to me. That there are people here right now who have had heartbreak over sins of their parents, who have had turmoil over parents who get in trouble and they don't know what to do, who have had broken relationships. And Lord, give us wisdom. I thank you that we're not left on our own, but you've given us your word, which gives us principles. Give us wisdom in applying those principles. And, Lord, have compassion on us that we could find our security in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.